Grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Our text for our sermon is John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. To remind you of that account, I will read the first verse. On the evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were together behind locked doors because of their fear of the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. This is the gospel of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus had appeared that morning to Mary, and then after her, he appeared to the rest of the group of the women. Somewhere in between, he appeared to Peter. Then he appears to the Emmaus disciples, which come back and report, and it's after that that today's text begins. And there was reason for the disciples gathered in that room to fear. They had followed the Lord for three years. But they had heard the thunder of the crowd shouting, Crucify, crucify. They had seen the Sanhedrin plot at work, and they had seen the government that should have stopped this involved in the murder itself. Peter had lost heart. As Jesus had predicted, before the rooster crowed twice, he had denied his Lord three times, afraid of a little servant girl recognizing him as a Galilean. All of them had ran and fled all but John, who came to the foot of the cross. You can imagine, they think everything is bad. And I've seen the risen Lord, what's going on? Are they going to gather a mob and come against us when Jesus, remember, now he's using the full powers of his God. But he doesn't have to walk through doors anymore. Boo! He just appears. Wow! You ever had somebody come around a corner and scare you? Well, imagine having them up here into a locked room. And he says those words, peace be with you. Jesus is the word. So when he says, peace be with you, he's not just saying a pious wish. I really, you know, I hope you're having a good day. He literally is imparting peace upon them. Comfort as they worry about that Sanhedrin, which now they'll stand up to. uh, Peter and John will be beat by that very Sanhedrin and not relent of their message ever again. He gives them true peace. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus' resurrection gives true peace. And that is the theme for our sermon today. Now, he appears to them and he says, peace be with you. But do you recognize he's not just saying, I'm removing your timidity against the angry mob and against the Sanhedrin and against the Roman government? No. These men had denied their Lord. They had forsaken and ran away. Peace be with you. I forgive you. He's putting peace in their heart. His resurrection would give them that peace. It had won it for them. And he even told them beforehand, like with Peter, once you return, I want you to get back to work. You're an apostle. And that's exactly what he transitions into. In verse 20, we're told, after he said this, he showed them his hands inside. I want you to know this was no faint act. And we want to remember, this is not just the 11 disciples. In fact, Thomas is missing. There's another group like the Emmaus disciples who came to report. There's more people in this room than just the 11 minus Thomas. But he shows them his hands inside so they can tell. This was no trick. They can tell, I truly have risen and I am God. They are witnesses to that and you trust in that witness and it gives you peace. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Just as the Father has sent me, I'm also sending you. 
And it's interesting, the Greek word that is used when you send somebody with a commission is apostolos, where we get our word apostle. But Jesus wasn't just sending the 11 minus Thomas there that day. He's sending all of his disciples. You are a disciple. He has given you a great commission. That is spelled out clearly at the ascension in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, when he says, Go and make disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and by teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And that peace is still there when he says, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. He's sending them out, brothers and sisters in Christ, with the commission to spread the good news. And here he explains what the commission is and empowers them. Verse 22, after saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Whenever you forgive people's sins, they are forgiven. Whenever you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, these are people who are gathered together in this room discussing the resurrection before he appears because they do have faith in him. Now, their faith is confused, but they do have faith in him, which means they already have the Holy Spirit. What's Jesus doing? The Holy Spirit gives many different gifts, so we call them spiritual gifts. In Revelation, he's called the sevenfold spirit because he gives seven is the number of completeness and perfection. He gives the perfect gifts to the church. Jesus breathing on them gives them a particular gift of the Holy Spirit to bind and release sins. We want to get into that. Because this gift has been given to you. And that's the first thing we want to recognize. Thomas is not there that day. So if you think it's only given to the apostles, well, he doesn't breathe on Thomas and do this for him again. And we're not in the original Greek wording. We're not given the, the impression that he went up to each individual person in the room and breathed on them. He breathed out once. This is a gift given to the church. So if you ever hear somebody think that a particular man filling a particular office is a a successor of the Apostle Peter, it doesn't say he only breathed on Peter. He breathed on the whole group. This is the priesthood of all believers. Why would he give the Holy Spirit so that you can bind and release sins? Because brothers and sisters in Christ, it takes the Holy Spirit for us to do this properly. What do I mean? Binding a sin is a serious thing. When you bind a sin to somebody, you lock the gates of heaven and fling open the gates of hell. When you die, you either go to one or the other. There's no in between. When you release somebody's sins, you lock the gates of hell. They can't go there. And you fling open, unlocking the gates of heaven. So we want to be careful how we exercise this. Isn't it easy when somebody hurts us to harbor a grudge? Wouldn't we want to, sometimes over the pettiest things, deprive them of the forgiveness of sins, sulk in our bitterness? Do we realize that when we refuse to forgive somebody, what we are wishing in our heart is an eternity in hell for them? It takes a gift of the Holy Spirit to do as our Savior did when he was on the cross and prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This takes a spiritual gift because our sinful nature will not do it. But you know, brothers and sisters in Christ, it's also easy to just announce forgiveness of sins and not announce the law. If a person does not know their sin, then they do not know that they need their sins forgiven, nor will they rejoice in it. 
It's easy to excuse away all kinds of sins. Ah, bosh, God's a loving God. Yes, to announce the use the binding and loosing key takes supernatural powers. Knowledge of the word of God. And there are times, brothers and sisters in Christ, we just can't read a person's heart. When a person is stuck in a sin, it takes spiritual gift in prayer to know, A, whether or not they're embracing the sin and letting it take a place in their heart that God should have, saying, I love this sin more than God, so I'll forfeit my salvation, or B, whether they're struggling against it and losing the fight. Because one needs the forgiveness. The other needs the binding key. God has given this key to you. He has made you priests and he gives you his word, which the Holy Spirit works through to strengthen you in this ability. Now, when I take people through a membership class, I do cover the priesthood of all believers and we get to the binding and loosing key. By the way, the extreme example of the binding key is excommunication. And it should never be something we rush into. It should never be something we rejoice in. It should be the last resort. And the prayer should be that it sends them running back to say, give me that loosing key. But I explain to people when I take them through the class that when we begin our worship service, and this is why we used uh, the, the liturgy on page 15, I say, I, as a called servant of the Lord, forgive you all your sins. Am I a mini pope of our church? No. So how can I do that? It is one, because like you, I have been made a member of the priesthood of all believers. I too can sprinkle the blood on Christ. But two, I say as a called servant, you have called me to be your representative. The forgiveness would be just as valid if you turned to each other and said that, brother and sister in Christ, as, as a member of the priesthood of all believers, I forgive you all your sins. But for the sake of order, you call me and have me do that as your representative formally in worship. But you have this all the time. You are priests. And so Jesus' resurrection gives us true comfort, our true peace through the binding and loosing keys. And don't you feel at peace as we begin our worship hearing my sins have been removed, being reminded of that? And it gives us peace to see when we look at the law and say, thank you, Lord, you have won forgiveness for me. And he gives you the privilege of sharing that peace with others by using that binding and loosing key. Now, as I've said, the problem is there's one guy missing that night, and that is Thomas. And that's where our text follows after Jesus gives them the binding and loosing key and the gift of the Holy Spirit so that they will be able to apply them properly. But Thomas, one of the twelve, the one called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples kept telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger in the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is one of my favorite portions of scripture. Because Thomas is confused what faith is. Many Christians get confused what faith is. We have this saying, seeing is believing. That's the scientific method. That's empirical evidence. If I want something to be a scientific truth, I have to prove it. I have to set up an experiment. And when it passes, anybody else ought to be able, under the same circumstances, to duplicate those results. Says, I, I, I want to see the Lord risen. I want to put my hand in his side. But brothers and sisters in Christ, faith is trusting when God defies 
science, which is the rules he used to govern this universe. Faith doesn't even make sense to science. Because faith is that Holy Spirit living in your heart so that you trust in God. I always envied Thomas because we're told after eight days his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Take your hand and put it into my side. Do not continue to doubt but believe. He let Thomas have his scientific evidence. But you know the problem with scientific evidence is then you afterwards you can say, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I, maybe I misunderstood that. Maybe Thomas was saying that because psychologists have seen where you can work in a group and you can convince them of the most absurdest things if, if they all want to believe it. They'll actually hypnotize each other through repetition into believing something that's utterly ridiculous. People wanting something to happen so bad will actually hallucinate. Their mind will give them what they want. I saw and put my hands there. Well, maybe I was dreaming. Maybe I forgot. So don't kid yourself. Jesus does something wonderful here. When Jesus says stop doubting and believe, Jesus is the word of God. And his word will keep him from going back in the past saying, Ah, maybe I was mistaken. Maybe that was some other guy who drew No, he would put an end to all that. Faith trusts in God. Now, Jesus also says to him, because I say I've always envied Thomas, he got to see this, he got to touch those whole marks, but that's not faith. And Jesus said to him, um, because you have seen me, you, but you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You are blessed beyond Thomas. Because it's been 2,000 years, brothers and sisters in Christ, since this happened. 2,000 years later, and truly, there are documents that record a man named Jesus, that, that he was crucified. You're, you're a fool if you think a guy named Jesus didn't walk on the earth. But Jesus, working through the testimony of those who saw him, 2,000 years later, puts his Holy Spirit in your heart so that you believe what never happens. Somebody who was dead and in the grave for three days, had the whole marks and everything else, had the spear driven into him, rose. You believe what truly defies science. God became a man. And one of the greatest places where you see this and God turns around and blesses it is in the Lord's Supper. Many people want to use the scientific method. That's bread, that's wine. Jesus says, this is my body. We'll scratch out the word is and we'll add the word represents there. Now that makes sense. Now that's good science. And they deprive themselves of comfort. Others want to forget that the way he says it in the Greek means it's still bread and it's still wine as well. Bread and wine are present. They say, it looks and tastes like it, but it's the body and blood of our Lord. And they do ridiculous things like worship it. Through faith, the Holy Spirit leads you to believe what science cannot prove. That you are receiving the body and blood of our Lord in a special sacramental presence. And wonderfully, God gives you peace when you receive that because it nourishes your faith, strengthens your faith in that resolution that you receive the body and blood of our Lord, strengthens your faith so that you know the forgiveness of sins is yours because you, in a neat way, in a wonderful way, have just received the body and blood that was given for you for your forgiveness. See, God gives you peace as well. He gives you peace by giving you faith, working through his word and his sacraments, 
And ultimately, you have that faith so that you're at peace knowing no matter what happens, my sins are forgiven. Now, our sinful nature likes to argue against that. It likes to make us think that God hates us. It likes to make us think that God can't forgive us. It likes to make us think anything, anything, but that God loves us and has forgiven us. And so our faith, too, is a special gift in which God seals his Holy Spirit in our heart. That happens at baptism. Now, oftentimes you'll, you'll hear Christians, if you want to have a stronger faith, and, and they'll send you, or do you want to know if you have faith? They'll send you to look at yourself and what you do. But faith is God's Holy Spirit in you so that you actually believe. Do you come to the word? Is the trust there that the promises are there? Then God is working. You have faith. You are elect. And, and, and in that very word, God strengthens that faith and assures you. So you say, even though your sinful nature fights against it, yes, I am at peace. The forgiveness is mine because of what Jesus Christ did. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus' resurrection gives true peace through the binding and loosing of sins and by blessing you with faith so that you know Jesus is your Savior and your sins have been loosed. Amen. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.